You're listening to the Diversity Beyond the Checkbox podcast. I'm your host, Jackie Ferguson, certified diversity executive, writer, human rights advocate, and co-founder of the Diversity Movement. On this podcast, I'm talking to trailblazers, game changers, and glass ceiling breakers who share their inspiring stories, lessons learned, and insights on business, inclusion, and personal development. Today, I have two great guests, Tom Droge and Keith Daniel, founders of Resilient Ventures, a capital fund dedicated to disrupting systemic economic injustice by expanding access to capital, networks, and opportunity to African-American founders. Keith and Tom, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you, Jackie. Pleasure. Pleasure to be with you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, too. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'd love to start by having each of you share just a bit about your background and how you came to know each other. Yeah, we met, um, it's been at least about 14, 15 years ago, I think 2009, somewhere in there, we had some mutual friends that were coming back from a mission trip abroad or actually living abroad that they weren't really on mission. They were there for a number of years. And that was kind of our mutual, uh, Friendships and these are very uh, deep friendships uh, that we happen to share with this particular family. And when they came back to the U.S., part of their kind of discernment process was how would they resettle in, with particularly around commitment to serving in um, the black community, in particular. What I don't like to use these terms, but marginalized, under under resourced communities. They had a they were really focused on that, and they were uh, inviting us to be conversation partners and advisors for them. And they were actually committed to asset-based community development, which is a philosophy and a you know a research research-based approach to addressing systemic and uh, community-based issues. In fact, Michelle Obama uh, is is amongst kind of the pioneers of that approach. And so we gathered in our by my home for a few years uh, with the couple, this couple actually read a book called The Disintegration of Black America, um, which was also a very eye-opening book looking historically over time at the kind of the gap between the majority of us and then the Oprah Winfrey's of the world. And, and you know, you know, just looking at that and then also looking at uh, immigrant communities, how they transition to the U.S. versus African-American native, native-born families um, or captive-born families, and then become native. And then from there, um, staying in contact just through church, kind of church interactions, uh, the, the faith-based community, various boards we've been on that are you know, nonprofit-oriented. So we kind of were around each other. And then one day, Tom showed up at my church for a presentation discussion that was being led by one of my men- mentees from Duke on the question of race and reconciliation and faith. And after that, Tom invited me to be a part of a study he was involved in, uh, addressing his white peers about race, racist history of race and racism, um, having come out of uh, a, a real journey of his own, and in particular, uh, having been a part of the Racial Equity Institute workshops. And we sort of combined our, our passion around liberation work, both for white folks as well as uh, members of my, the black community, black and brown community, still you know pursuing racial justice, and that led to us taking action by by uh, co-founding Resilient Ventures. 
Awesome. Tom, anything to add? And tell us a little about your background as well. So that same couple that Keith mentioned had recommended Keith back to me again when I, I, I had started this group that was trying to take racial equity concepts and merge them alongside the gospel and teach in a Christian setting. And uh, the uh, Cameron Smith, who was uh, our friend there, had sat in on the first group that I had and uh, had some other people sit in on the next. And it came to a point where she suggested I really needed to partner with someone in the community. And she recommended Keith and, you know, brought back remembrances of our prior experience. And so, yeah, it was at that church that I was actually in dire straits. I had I had three weeks into this group of pastors at our church, and I was about to do the fourth session, which was where the gospel intersected with racial equity, and I really didn't have anything. So it was a really uh, a providential moment, and then learned a lot in that conversation. We may cover it later on today, but that's the background. Love it. Love it. Hmm. Now, let's talk a little bit about resilient ventures. And I talked about what that is, but let's let's actually get into the disparity in funding between black entrepreneurs and white entrepreneurs. The last research that I read said that black entrepreneurs receive only about 1.2% of capital investment in the US, which is actually an increase since 2020. How does resilient work to level that playing field? Well, we want to move the the needle with just the funds that we can raise. But I would add that number is, I feel, pretty widely known. You know, it's between 1% and 2% as it's quoted. I I also saw 1.7%. But what's less known, I think, is the underlying biases that are still prevalent. And that's the underside of that question that I think we're also really working to change. You still have, like there's a Morgan Stanley survey came out just in October, said 70% of white investment decision makers in large pension funds, endowments, et cetera, still believe that prioritizing diversity in their investment management meant sacrificing returns, right? So that's one. There's still a belief that investing in diversity will sacrifice returns. And then the other study by the Harvard Business School found that minority-owned firms either outperformed as well or outperformed their white-owned peers. So um, in terms of actually what we're doing, I think that's clear. Um, not enough money is getting to founders, black founders. And we know that firsthand from Fund One, where we invested in the series stage kind of companies, companies that had revenue, they'd done product market fit. They needed a small amount of money, like $250,000 to $500,000. It was still hard to raise that amount of money. But what we see is just going to move up the ladder. I mean, it's no different as you move up the funding spectrum, um, it's just as hard or harder to get Series A money, which is the next place that people go to. So if you're asking what we're working to do to level the playing field, I'd, I'd say we're moving up the, the ladder and trying to change biases in the community of, of white men that are making these investment decisions. 
you know, that's such an important mission, right? And in, in trying to create that equity, you know, if you think about the wealth gap specifically, mm-hmm. let's talk about some of the long-term effects of this wealth gap. And what do you say to those that, you know, will say, we all have access to the American dream if we work hard. We all have the same opportunity. How do you speak to that? Yeah, that's a, a question I think a lot about. Um, and actually, I would commend that book that I mentioned earlier, uh, Disintegration of Black America. It looks at that disparity. Uh, and and there's also this, we, we talk about the myth of meritocracy. Um, but it's a powerful myth. And it's, you know, it's kind of what has made America great, right? I mean, when when Dr. King talked about the dream, it was that, yeah, we, though we were brought here ca- as captives, there's this like aspiration that we can, we can pursue happiness and 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 quote be happy in America. The first phase phase of the movement began with our, the establishment of the foundation of our own dignity, despite all the systems that were overtly structured against us, right? So that was the first step. We had to know we had enough dignity to say, okay, I'm not going to accept the busing system as it is, right? I'd rather walk, right? Then we pursue the matter of equity and or equality as it relates to just to, to get jobs, so just to be interviewed, for example. But you know, we knew then that power was not going to concede of any like moral goodwill. It was gonna to have to be demanded um, with all due intentionality. And so your eyes are open to what does segregation look like today? So, you know, we talk about the segregated lunch counter, right? Now we need to look at, okay, I can get my coffee now, but I still can't own this building. How many of us cannot own the property, can't own the, you know, so you go up and so it, it can seem very daunting when you, you know, for generations, that's why we have to work. We have to think, okay, the work I'm doing now, I might not see the, the fruit today. But if I keep at it in 30 years from now, maybe there is a possibility that it will be more VCs of color that are successful in creating wealth that doesn't just leave the community as well. So, yeah, it's, it's a very, you know, it's that whole iceberg thing. You know, you got the what you can have to see on the surface. And then you start to parse out all this other systemic toxicity that, you know, puts a, put some pressure on all of us to do this, uh, to do successfully. I mean, the answer is the American dream is a myth. And it's not and it's worse than you would think in the sense that it's not like people fail to qualify for opportunities that were presented, but it's actually more like they were purposely disinherited. And, you know, four quick examples, you know, slavery was chosen over indentured servanthood. So African-Americans did not get the freedmen's wages like uh, white indentured servants did. The vote, voting was a right that was given and then taken away. Uh, redlining prevented African-Americans from benefiting from wealth gains and home ownership. And even something like a good Supreme Court ruling like Brown v. Board of Education that resulted in integration of schools. When you look at what actually went on, you know, all the black teachers and principals were fired. Um, the black school boards, which existed, were 
disintegrated and all the power moved to these uh, joined school district systems. So you lose power and influence on your own children's future. So it's a myth and it's worse than you actually think. Fortunately, I, I, there, is, there are more and more white people waking up to this, so. Yeah, and you know, it's, it's interesting because you're not taught any of this in school, right? And so having to discover this on your own through conversations, through research, is something that a lot of people don't take upon or haven't taken upon themselves until recently to do. But if you understand the history of how our systems are set up in this country, it, it is, you know, really eye-opening. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we understand, we understand, right, that disparity in access to capital. But let's dig into why access to networks equally important. Well, I was just, this came up in a conversation just had yesterday and that um, something as simple as warm introductions, it's all about warm introductions. You know, um, why don't black founders get before angel groups? Well, part of the screening process is you need someone to coordinate your submission of a, your entry form with a email from someone that's in the angel group and who has that right that's a big one uh, and it's simple and easy to do but you have to have the relationships to make it happen and you know some of our advisory board members are on our board with amazing connections to amazing opportunities um, so it is I, I mean it's access to capital networks and opportunities that's our go-to market plan, <laughs> I guess is what yeah. we're trying to do, right? Yeah, what I can say to that is I'm, I'm here in New York uh, this week for an organization called Culture Shift, Culture Shift Labs. It's a consulting-based organization that brings together black and brown folks uh, from all over the country. It's a summit this week, and there's VCs in the room, they're institutional leaders in the room, their family offices in the room. And the last presentation that I, I, I left to, to, to make it here was the controller, uh, the treasurer, essentially for uh, Connecticut, uh, the state of Connecticut. And he was sharing his background and his story. And that, you know, that question came up again about the summit being a place where we really want to take action around our our partnerships and relationships and that as fund managers of a first fund like ours, people are really funding, they're they're investing in us. They're they're investing in our, uh, their sense of trust and our aptitude and our capability. It's just, it's refreshing to be in a room with, you know, our, our, our community, but it's also sobering to realize that scenarios like Tom and I, where you know, he's very intentional. He said, I know uh, we use the analogy of Jackie Robinson going to the major leagues. It's a mindset here. It's a mindset. There's a lot of talent out there. There's a whole league of, you know, geniuses out there. And we know historically how many geniuses never got into the major leagues in terms of venture or owning businesses and so forth. And that's just, 
ridiculously shameful. I mean, just think if Major League Baseball today was still a segregated sport. You know, it very well could have been had it not been at least one general manager who said, I'm I'm not going to lose out on these, these right. incredibly talented players, right? So that's our mentality. And it it's a it's a delicate dance. You know, I'm at the stage of my career where I'm not really looking to network anymore. Honestly, I'm glad Tom has a lot of energy. He work, you know, works the room, interacts, uh, and that's important. You know, I do do that. I do it more on a, a attention level, but or you know, less uh, mass level, and some of that's temperament stuff. But the reality is, when people introduce you, like Tom said, and they say, "Hey, you don't want to miss these guys. Come over here and check this athlete out over here." I know what that feels like. Sticking with the sports analogy, having played college football and then not heavily recruited, but one day, you know, my dream coach comes to the school because my coach actually called the, the school and said, hey, we got a young man down here. He's 145 pounds soaking wet, but he, he you, you don't want to miss out. You know, you should talk to him. And I, if that doesn't happen, my dream doesn't come true. So that, that energizes me as well. Mm-hmm. So that's a very critical question. Definitely. Definitely. And, you know, that's, that's one of the things that we as black people in general, you know, haven't had the opportunity to access are those networks. And so now that, you know, we're so many of us have wanted to start business or do start businesses, but don't have the access to those introductions that make the access to capital access to opportunities easier. And that's, that's something that, you know, just historically, we just haven't had access to as a whole. Right. So that's so important. So important. If I could, let me, can I uh, paint another stroke on here? Kind of teed it up. So, you know, part of the weariness of, of being black in America is these decisions we might have to make every day, right. That are sort of what I call borderline. Am I selling out? Or am I all in in my community? So, like, I use a choice about do I choose an HBCU or do I choose a white university and pursue that path of, you know, expanding my horizons by attending these, you know, the elite Ivies, you know, and that that's not a, you know, that's not a simple equation because, you know, again, we learned how to make it on our own. We, we fought injustice and created our communities. Then they were burned down or they were destroyed by some other, quote, economic issue, right? So I think part of the labor pains that still is reality is on the question of networking. You know, I, I'm i not, and depending on where you are in your career, if you're starting a business, it's it's a grind. And so your readiness to walk into certain rooms uh, and once you get there, you're the only one or you're presenting, you know, in front of a group of mostly wealthy white folks and trying to overcome the psychology of what, you know, how they're viewing you and, it's just so labor intensive. So for us, part of the our aspiration is our team is diverse, right? It's not uh, we've been intentional about that. So a woman walks in the room, she's going to see a, a white woman. She's going to see a you know a, a woman of color. She's going to see you know other other forms of um, a diver- diverse group. And I think that's kind of that vision that we see. Not to say that an all black firm. When all white firm is not worthy of its its commitments to venture investing, but I think that's part of um, we know what the optic looks like. It, it has a both and to it. Okay, got a black guy with a white guy. You know, the white guy is probably the wealthy one, and he's his privilege is is sort of a current for the you know for the black guy. And 
then they look below the surface and they say, no, these guys are, you know, equal stories of like success and hard work. And but they but they're not ashamed to say, look, we know how historically access has only been made possible because a white person in power has on some level conceded or said, I'm going to be intentional in sharing it. Right. And not like, oh, I'm going to help a black guy out. Not to mean, some of them do, but I'm saying the idea, the ideology behind us is not, it's not about, oh, I'm going to help some black people out. I'm going to be charitable. That is again, another level of mindset around that. So sorry. I'm kind of. No, that's, that's so important, Keith. And you know, it's just true. There, there are some doors that are harder for us to open, that we need those allies, those people who are intentionally working with us and alongside us to be able to open. And that's that's just a fact. So let's talk a little about Resilient. What types of companies does Resilient invest in? And is there a success story that you'd like to share? I, I will start with that. Um... We didn't intentionally set out to do this, but if you look at the profile of the companies we've invested in, uh, they've turned out mostly to be business to business, um, technology enabled in some way with product market fit determined with real customers, the the differentiation, you know, um, you can give your product away and you can get early adapters to try it out, but what you really want is your bread and butter customers. So. These are companies that figured that out. And surprisingly or not surprisingly, either way you want to look at it, most of the companies had had over six years of being in business. So typically, you know, these companies, we'd invest in them in 2020 and they, they're like 2014, I think is the most common founding date for these companies. So compared to, I think the, in general, White entrepreneurs, these companies have been at it longer and have had a harder time get, getting um, capital. But on the other hand, they've done they've done a lot more with less over all the times. And and also, I would say revenues. Several of the companies already had two million in revenue and still finding hard to raise capital. So. I think we have nine success stories right now out of 11, so it's hard to pick. But um, Circle In right here in Apex is a company that we found early on. They have a study group software for institutions of higher education that you know uses peer-to-peer learning. We all had study groups in college, right? Because you put That's that right. on. So I think they have a great product and they've signed an incredible number of institutions of higher education and you know that they've actually made a serious penetration into the market. And uh, that's the one I would talk about. Love it. Can you have anything to add? Yeah. So I mentioned we did make a commitment to a main street company and um, happened to be a restaurant cafe, uh, a uniquely locally branded cafe by the name of BU. They started at the time we invested, they had two locations. They now are um, about to open a sixth location. And they managed that through the pandemic. And the way Dorian uh, Bolden, the CEO, did it was to me just exceptional, uh, exceptional uh, resilience. Uh, he found a way to, to um, you know, tap into the need that, 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 
needed to be addressed in the, both in terms of access to food for our school children. Um, he coalesced some other cafe shop restaurant owners to address uh, some of the food insecurity concerns and then developed out his um, ready to eat meal, meal packages, catering, up, upgraded his, his operation systems and, you know, continue to uh, leverage the, the capital that was out there, both in terms of the uh, government relief and, and, and various grants and support from other partners. Didn't have to tap into our investment that far as well. So, and on and on, um, he grew his team. I mean, they dropped down at one point. They were maybe 12 or 13 employees. They're up to like 80 employees now. Yeah, it just, again, Main Street is not a typical VC investment. I mean, and there's a lot of high, high risk to that, but, you know, Dorian had, had already been CEO for about 10 years and had purchased the building for his property and, you know, just comes out and has a finance background. So there's so much about, you know, about people talk about you're, you're investing in a team or you're investing in a product or you're investing in both. Sometimes you'd rather have an A team, if you see product maybe. And in that mix, I mean, we love all of our, our our product offerings, as it were, from our deals. But they, you know, being in the restaurant space is 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 tough. And and he did he did such an exceptional job. So I give him a shout out as one. That's so great. Thanks for sharing that. Now, what advice would you to give to an aspiring entrepreneur who's looking to launch a business? How do they get started? What are the things? that they need to know as they get started? Well, I'll just say for me, I mean, the story of my life has been, and, and I'm really experiencing it today in the recent passing of my father, is how important it is. You And and having said that, I, it's, it's going to be weird. I'm going to now mention Coach K, and that's going to offend probably you know, a certain number of your listeners. But because of so much of my career has been at Duke University, and I, I did go on to play football there and win a championship, you know, championship teams. I'm just often, you know, I feel sometimes overwhelmed by the kind of people I have around me, just geniuses. Being being in Durham as well, the legacy city, I mean, relationships are key. So I, I think one of the things I reflect about Black experience again in America is if you don't have an entrepreneur in your family, for example, or you don't, you don't have someone who can help you kind of visualize the work that goes into it and what it needs. And that's that's part of the, the struggle. It's like because you need people coaching you, you need people who can find, you know, hey, you, I got I need I need a finance guy. I need a, you know, I need an operations and I, I can't spend years <laughs> fine. I got it's almost like I wish you had a ready-made kit of the right talent and maximizing my own gifts because you do have to wear a lot of hats for one, but you don't have to keep them on, you know, endlessly. Right. So I, I guess I would punctuate it by saying that, you know, look around, you see, see who can you can bring into the the vision, the, the you know, what you this problem you're seeking to solve and go as long as you can with uh, either not paying yourself and them, you know, before you need money. I mean, that's the bootstrap quote, the bootstrapping part of it, because you right. that's right. hustle, hustle that there needs to be a fire that happens from that. But. It can't be solo. You know, we don't we don't invest in solopreneurs. Uh, it's all about teams. And yeah. so I'll leave, I'll stop there. I would just add on to that. You can find that team before you start your company, right? A lot of VCs like to see a team coming out, 
of some other entity. They look for not just one founder coming out of some place, but uh, a founder that already has relationships with a group of people that go out of a company and form their own. Learn how to sell. I mean, everybody, a founder has to be able to sell. And uh, you can moonlight and get the, you know, work for another company for five, seven years. I I really don't understand how someone can go to uh, study entrepreneurship in college and then go out, <laughs> exit from college and start a business. But it's, we've gotten to that point where we're, it's like a major in college. Right. <laughs> but there are so many skills that need to be developed in order to do that successfully between right that turning that castle and having your first really successful business. Such great advice. So what's the question that you ask in your due diligence that trips up most founders? What a question. Like, I, I don't think we purposely, Keith, we don't purposely try to trip people up, do we? <laughs> <laughs> but I will tell you, as a general rule, what almost all founders do is they spend way too much on their product. I mean, they, they have, they'll have, you know, 10 slides on their product. They'll use up 15 or their 20 minutes telling you about it and got to stop doing that. Um, there are other questions that need to be covered, like exits and how they sell and market and their team and all those kinds of things. So your so your deck needs to be balanced, right? I mean, there's 10 things you got to address. So um, don't don't spend 70% of your time on product. Um, the other, I'll just give you kind of a, a known pet peeve. Um, and I, and it's got a twist to it too. So a lot of times a founder will say, if we can just, you know, they'll say it was a billion dollar market. And then they'll say, if I can get 1% of the market we're in and how hard is it to get 1%? Well, it's really, really hard to get 1%, <laughs> really, really hard. And then ironically, even when you get 1%, it flips on you and it gets turned the other way because say you do get 1% of a market and you have a million dollars in revenue then the VC is going to apply the math and say, well, that's just a $100 million business. So now you're in too small. Just don't even go there with the 1%. It's not going to help you in your presentation. It makes you look kind of a rookie mm. amateur, and it won't help you even if you get it. So, Tom, that's good advice. Keith, <laughs> what would you add? The baseline is always, you know, how are you going to make money, right? I feel like maybe 50%, maybe 30% of entrepreneurs kind of really know, you know, this is, this is going to be, this is our secret sauce. And this is why people are going to pull this off the shelf against all the hundred other options that they have for their, their desire or need. Right. Um, so thinking just really critically, this is why it's priced this way. Here's our operations costs, you know, cost of goods gold. I mean, the, the numbers part of it. And I, I'm saying that and I'm not when it comes to Tom and us, you know, work and we have our accountants and CPAs supporting us. But I'm realizing, man, if I were to be on that side, I'd be spending a lot of, you know, really focusing when I tell people, hey, you don't want to miss this. And this this uh, this the numbers line up. And, and part of that too is it, it goes back to the valuation question. That's another thing that was a learning learning curve for me. I think, particularly in our community, uh, 
we our, the value we associate with our product or service does not fit the same context of oftentimes how the market sees it because there's market there's there's actually the market is racist too because it's like it doesn't account for the historical barriers and things that we've overcome that have registered for us as to why you should pay me more or you should put in more right and that's something time now we've we've had some back and forth on like no it's a, it's a straightforward equation you can't say your company you can't say because you bought your building or you you know you bootstrapped that it's somehow because the market ain't saying that this is what the market's saying about you know what you're entering so yeah just being as clear and as as ready to to walk away from also certain investors um not take every necessarily every dollar uh, you know just because you know people throwing at you because again those that can that can come with some cost too absolutely so i would be remiss if i didn't ask about the link between dei and church so let's let's talk about that just for a second because that's a conversation that many of us have had that think they should be separate, right? That there's not a correlation between diversity, equity, inclusion, and church. Can you speak to that just a little bit? And, and what are your thoughts on that? I mean, part of the challenge for me, and I, I, I'm at the stage of my career that I'm very kind of secure in my identity, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That being said, my professional life the second half of my professional life was primarily and is still very much lodged in theological work. And one of Dr. King's quotes that stood out for me years ago that like, I was like, oh, that's why that quote so stood out to me is that he said that philanthropy, philanthropy is necessary, but it must not cause the philanthropist to overlook or to ignore the economic injustices that makes philanthropy necessary. Right. And what people don't sometimes I teach a course on I'm a teaching assistant at the Divinity School a course on King. We talk about this vision of humanity that also addresses it, addresses the needs of a community of people. Right. And that came from a theologian, <laughs> a traditional church pastor. Right. Who did not see himself or go to school to become the voice, the leader of the march towards freedom that wasn't just about treat me with dignity and stop lynching me. It was actually no equal equity and pay, equity and dignity that comes from a livable wage, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, there's not not a separation because, I mean, again, I started out by saying my age. I was born in 68. So I know what it looks like for people of faith to realize that the walls of the church should not stop us from doing faith work in our neighborhoods and our communities to make sure everybody eats, to make make sure everybody has a a roof over their head, right? Some of the basic things. So to me, to me, my 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 view has never. The more I've emerged as an adult and as a professional, is is to realize every day is a is a commitment to the well being of the other folks. And in our country, it happens to be capitalism. And again, people. Talk about the you know immorality that can be with capitalism because you got you know these mega billionaires and half the employees are 
living paycheck to paycheck, stuff like that, right? So for me, that is a, a religious, it's a spiritual question. I don't think a traditional church in the ways that some folks have started to be disenchanted with the church as a whole and they're not going back anymore, <laughs> uh, that sort of thing. So that's uh, my, my mindset towards it, uh, some of that background. Thanks, Keith. Tom? That's an interesting question in the sense that my journey that led to Resilient Ventures was so directly involved with the question of the church and race. And in my case, it began in the 90s with Promise Keepers, which, where, when I was first introduced to the concept of segregated spaces and prejudice. And that's where I met the people we talked to at the beginning, Ernest Smith, who he and I worked together in Promise Keepers in Durham to lead the efforts here. And he took it on his own initiative to walk me through, you know, what it was like to be stopped by the police and what it's like to be black in America and mentored me. And But then shortly after the Promise Keepers movement, where, where you know, one of the promises of a promise keeper was to engage in racial reconciliation. Almost as fast as it came on the scene, it disappeared with kind of the next men's movement, which was kind of this wild at heart movement. So for a while, Christian men were engaged in this idea of keeping our promises. And then then it suddenly, be, we adopted the, there, there was the banging on drums movement around that time. And so all of a sudden, Christian men just went off onto another tangent um, that was the 90s. And so when the conversation started coming up again for me as my experience at my church, which was 2016, we had a presentation on uh, the letter from the Birmingham jail. I thought, amazing, our church is going to cover this letter. And I was like, uh, I'm astounded. I mean, what in the world? And But they missed the mark. They really missed the mark. They didn't make the point that the letter was about the the church being hesitant to engage and, and oppositional. And then when the conversation did start, it was it was using terms like racial reconciliation from the 90s and things like that. That's kind of all how Keith and I got involved. It is disheartening to see that the, the white evangelical church or Christian church maybe more also at large has, has uses any any excuse it needs to stay away from this conversation about diversity. And the latest excuse is CRT. I mean, so we were making some progress on talking about race in the Christian Church of America, and along came just another reason why not to talk about it. Um, so then you you really do come, it's, it, it's not just that the Christian Church was complicit or didn't do enough, it turns out that they were really more directly involved with the creation of racism in America. So it's really disencouraging. And, and you see the rise of uh, Christian nationalism. and You start to see everything with a different perspective. You, you notice when all the private Christian schools started, you look at all their foundational dates and you find out they were all the civil rights movement. So. Yeah. Well, you know, I I love what you both said about the responsibility that we have as a community, as a spiritual community, 
to ensure that other people have what they need to survive and live and thrive. Uh, I think that's so important. So thanks for, for sharing that. As we wrap up our time, Tom and Keith, thank you so much for spending some time with us today and for your amazing insights. What would you like to leave our listeners with today? Well, I, I, I want to thank you again for the opportunity to share a bit of our story. Um, yeah, I mentioned about this uh, recently uh, losing my father. Uh, unfortunately, he lived for 86 years. Uh, and we're at the stage of life. Uh, Tom might not have picked it up, but he mentioned about most productive. Some research says your most productive years are when you're in your 60s. I'm not quite there yet. But as far as, um, you know, our listeners concerned, uh, yeah, life is, life is, uh, is fleeting. Um, we know we're living in some perilous times. You know, take good care of yourself, good care of your health. Uh, hold, hold those close around you um, as close and tell folks you love them, tell folks you appreciate them. Um, I'm grateful I had so many wonderful memories about my dad. It's made, made the loss less grieving, but grieving nonetheless. Uh, so. Yeah, live live your passion, uh, and and let your passions be known uh, to those around you, even if it seems somewhat outlandish. That's it for me. Well, I'll just add. I, I want to also add my appreciation to you, Jackie, and to the diversity movement. I was just on the call today with someone from Atlanta who knew of had amazing experiences with with your founder. Donald as well, and had nothing but good things to say about you. Um, I would leave it with, um, you know, get on the bus with this journey. If not with us, someone else, um, you know, diversity is a lot more than just as a business model, right? Diversity is a lot more than just reaching markets better. You know, you will miss out on innovation. Diversity drives innovation. And, and you will miss out. I mean, every day, like I'm hearing another story, like, um, so Jack Daniels, Tennessee whiskey, right? I mean, I'm sure you know now, you know, Jack Daniels was, he basically um, apprenticed himself as a young man to nearest green, African-American inventor of Tennessee whiskey. Um, and later, turned it into a ginormous company or to learn, you know, Top Top Gun 2 is in the theaters, right? So you also find out now that first Top Gun award went to the Tuskegee Airmen and the the results of the of the competition were listed as unknown for 50 plus years until they resolved that. So, you know, you will miss out if you're not in this space. That's what I would leave it with your listeners. Well, thank you again both so much for spending some time with me today and continued success in your wonderful investments and the the companies that you're supporting and bolstering. Thank you again. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining me for this episode. Please take a moment to subscribe and review this podcast and share this episode with a friend. Become a part of our community on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. This show was edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Jackie Ferguson. 
Join us for our next episode of Diversity Beyond the Checkbox. Take care of yourself and each other.